Welcome to the Let's Talk podcast from the University of Edinburgh, where we talk about life and all it may throw at you at university, focusing especially on our mental health. I'm Harriet Harris, the university chaplain, and today I'm joined by third-year biology undergraduate Rosie Taylor and Professor of Engineering and Assistant Principal for Academic Support, Alan Murray. And we're talking about anxiety and depression. In this episode, you will hear about physical and emotional sides to anxiety and depression, the role of doctors, how it can feel to have a panic attack, and what's helpful and what isn't when you're depressed or anxious. We also talk about experiences of supporting others and about leaning in to difficult feelings. So, really nice to be with you both this morning. Um, Rosie, would you like to tell us a bit more about yourself? Um, So my name is Rosie and I use she, her pronouns and I am the elected LGBT plus officer for the university, uh, which means that I represent uh, marginalised students um, and try to hold the university and the systems that make it up uh, to account a little bit. Um, I'm also a lead coordinator of Wellcom, which is a peer support scheme for STEM students, mainly focuses on mental health and wellbeing. Thanks very much, Rosie. Alan. Hi, I'm Alan. I'm part of the university that's being held to account here. Uh, I'm the oldest person in the room by quite a lot. I'm a professor in engineering, um, assistant principal for academic support, which means I have oversight of many aspects of student support on the academic side. Uh, But I'm also a father to two children, a husband to a wife and a grandfather to two granddaughters, and I'm besotted by them all. And I love music. Mm. A major interest in music and Without music, I would be terminally insane. Ah, you write music, don't you, as well as play music? Yes, that's that's how I get a lot of my feelings out. Yeah, I've really liked some of the music you've sent my way. It's been lovely. Mm, Your compositions and band. Checks in the post, Harriet. Right, okay. (laughs) (laughs) We've got that plug. Plug for Alan's music. Yeah, Yeah, got Mm -hmm. that in. Yeah, that's the first gift of today. So our topic um, this morning is, uh, our topics, I should say, anxiety and depression. And I've bought you each um, a couple of gifts. (laughs) <laughs> Yay! First, <laughs> oh, yeah, they are called depressed pencils. Oh wow! <laughs> I don't know if you've seen those before. <laughs> Do you want to read? I can't remember what they say on them. What do they say? Mine says, "I'm not as sharp as I used to be." That's oh. one of them. Yes, mine says, "In time, I'll be pointless." That's <laughs> <laughs> a bit hard. Yeah. I like it. This is exactly my sense of humour. Yeah. Didn't realise it was quite so corny, actually, mm. but they're quite good, aren't they? they so, are say, and in a way, there's something about saying it as it is, isn't there? Really? Yeah, for With, sure. Uh, both depression and anxiety. But because um, they are depressed pencils, I also got you both some dark chocolate. Oh, <laughs> yay. As Thank we you. know, it's good for us. Did you know? How yeah, did you know? yeah, it's shown by science. We can both vouch for science. So. Mm. We officially say, yes, we endorse we, dark chocolate. We know dark chocolate's good for us. It's, it's good for us physically and mentally, isn't yes. it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So eat away. So I have actually yeah. had dark chocolate. It was too dark, too dark. Ah. So it was 85, and it was a, that was a bit aggressive. Ooh. Yeah, I like that, actually. And I'll, yeah. I'll go up to 90, but Ooh. I got you... That's 70, oh. isn't it? Which oh. is a bit... Yeah, oh, no, I'll go up to 90. Risky. Yeah, and I think I probably sometimes keep myself awake unwittingly, because if I have it late at night, and it's got quite a lot of caffeine in it, hasn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, I would imagine... It's like having a, a a big sort of hit of espresso coffee or something, yeah, isn't it's it? Like it's like a big, big, big chunk of, of dark. Mm. So enjoy. I thank shall. you. Um, thank you both of you for coming to speak about the topics of anxiety and depression. Would you like to speak about your experiences of either or both of these? I think that my experience, I, I'm try, I was trying to think back when I was thinking about this podcast to when I could first put 
a name to depression and that came a lot later but I know retrospectively and I think a lot of the time we think about it retrospectively my first experience is very much when I was very very young um and just really this overwhelming um sense of of sadness and just complete kind of voidness and I remember I just I was very young and I just sort of primary school age and I just was just crying for days and like I I'm not a crier now so that's gone um but uh yeah definitely just really in this real real big pit of just questioning and difficulty and feeling a lot of despair and a lot of what now I can put a name to as being like cycles of anxiety and depression um and that being really difficult and probably when it really started to be very noticeable was as I hit my teen years and we talk a lot about like those kinds of mental health issues and what I now know about mental health conditions to start to show themselves in those years and I think the most sort of anecdotal memory I have of it was a real when I hit probably a first real like depressive episode and um, my dad had gone away for a, a few days to a conference and I was at home by myself and uh, I just I just didn't leave bed for three days like I just stayed there and I remember feeling really like intensely I would get up and let the dogs out and that would be it because that was sort of my duty but um, really this this feeling of heaviness that's incredibly hard to communicate when you're not in it okay but also equally very difficult to communicate when you're in it mm. um so yeah it's the the memories I guess of anxiety and depression are very mixed and it depends really on where in my life and what it was focusing on um but I think my first memories really were very much of sadness and what sort of age would you say so I was probably about um nine or so when I first mm. really and, and my my parents definitely noticed it maybe didn't know what to put a mm. what kind of name to put on it um but sort of I think it was very worrying for my teachers um uh but yeah probably nine or so and then I was really about 16 17 when I started having real like episodes of really heavy depression and that manifesting very physically um and that would be like antagonistic to anxiety really mm. it's, it, it mm. is actually terrifying to watch from the outside yeah. you know, I, I saw depression in members of my family very close members of my family before I had it myself so I understand it better now, having been down that black path. But if you're the person who's watching someone you love suffering from depression, it's terrifying. Mm. So your your folks would have been absolutely terrified. Because I think there's a generational thing there. Yeah, definitely. Um, and uh, I think that it really depends uh, the, way, the way that you look at it. It's very much like there are a lot of people in my family that um, I maybe don't have contact with because of how their mental health has, has taken them down certain paths um but I think that for parents it it must be incredibly difficult to see your child struggling with something that you know you also beyond difficult it's horrendous yeah did you have language around it in your family did you have the vocab to express how you were feeling um no not Mm. really I think as I got older and um I probably Go, we'll probably go into a different point in the podcast, but like as, as I got older, it when it became very like intense and it was a lot of manifesting in a lot of different ways. Then we really had to talk about it because you can't ignore that. Um, but I think that I did not at any point when I was younger have the language to communicate even about how I was like feeling if mm. I was just sad. Yeah. Um, and I think that is a generational gap. Well, there also is a generational gap in terms of. Um feeling willing to talk about it. Your generation, I think, is in a much better position. Uh, my parents certainly wouldn't talk about it. And some of my colleagues here at work are horrified that I'm doing this. 
Mm. Okay. I'm talking about my mental health wow. conditions and problems openly, not just saying I have had a problem, which is fine, but actually you know, going into some of the details of what it makes mm. you feel like and yeah. the feelings of that. Um, and I think that's a generation thing which is beginning to correct itself probably in your generation. Harriet, you're somewhere in between. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's interesting speaking to, um, say, students who were perhaps undergraduates when I first came here. So I've, I've been here nine years now. So, so you've really seen a transition. So, so I have seen a transition. So, mm-hmm. so, you know, thinking about newspaper reports that have come out this week about the, the rise since 2010 in... Mm-hmm. in um, mental health disclosures at university. Uh, well, 2010 was when I began as a, as ah. a chaplain here. Been, I'd been a university chaplain down in Oxford for, for 10 years before that. And I have seen a, a, a rise each each year. It's been, uh, you know, the, this decade has been very different from the previous decade. But I do, you know, speaking to students who are now, who maybe graduated six years ago, something they're saying that they feel as though they're the first generation that was willing to talk about um, going for help as though that was a strength, uh-huh. you know, that mm-hmm. it was a strength to go and speak to a counsellor or to have a therapist or, yeah, you know, and so they feel like they were sort of pioneering mm. that, which I... I, I think the the language that really that I saw quite a bit in the older generation was like the, the black dog of depression. Mm. You guys have heard that and, and it, it being... And it's, I think that's very true. It's a very, like, good description of how that, how that really feels. Um, but there isn't much talk about like the sadness but I think that and how it feels to be in that experience mm-hmm. I mean, the physical symptoms as yeah well, like that tends not to be talked about mm. as much as it should I mean Black Dog can I get my musical plug in now yeah. If, you, yeah if you haven't heard them there's a song called Black Dog by Nick Drake uh-huh. which is a description of his depression but the one that I if I think relate to even more is a song called Solid Air mm. which is about Nick Drake written by a guy called John Martin who's now mm. dead as is Nick Drake um and solid air is that feeling of not being able to get out of bed because everything is solid around you and you can't move. It's sort of mm. like walking in glue. So yeah. you're thinking in glue and you're trying to move through glue. Yeah. You're living in solid air. I think that's a beautiful metaphor for that physical part of depression that sort of tends Definitely. to anchor you to the spot and says, just leave me in my bed, I'm fine, I'm safe here. If I don't move, I'll be fine. I think it's difficult as well because even like anatomically in terms of the cells in our brain is that we find it so difficult when we're in those spaces to even make those connections to communicate about it you can't put words to it not because you feel bad well partly because you feel bad but also because it's just difficult to even get those things moving in your head and to even kind of have that communication um and that makes it even more isolating yes because if you try to sort of sort it out in your head it doesn't make a lot of sense so because it doesn't make a lot of sense, you can't put a set of words together to say, this is what it is. It's only afterwards looking back on it, you can sort of begin to t- tease out the bits that were in your head at the time. Mm. But at the time, you're quite right, the language isn't there to say, this is how I'm feeling, because there aren't really words for that. And it takes a lot of energy to communicate as well, and energy is in quite low supply, isn't it, in a state yeah, of I think your body just concentrates on survival. So, mm. yes, your, your energy and your motivation to do stuff just drops away to zero. Mm. Could I ask you a bit more about the the feeling of you actually just not being able to get out of bed, which you, you've both mentioned. So is there both the sort of feeling of, um, I don't know, a, like a kind of heaviness of body, heaviness of limbs? Is, the, is, is there that? And is there also the, 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 I don't want to because it's it's actually safer here, so I'd rather... I would identify with the latter more than the former. Okay. I, think I identify with John Martin's solid air idea that everything is just so much effort. Right. Um, so that's the solid air part. But, that, that, you know, leave me here in the bed. I'm safe, it's warm. 
Um, I can't make any mistakes if I stay here. I can't upset anybody. Uh, I can't bother anybody. Nobody will be upset because they're seeing me in a bad state. If I just stay here out of the way, I'll be fine. Uh, so is there an element of I might be a burden then? Oh, yeah. Well, right. so, well, I should say, for me, that was a big, big part of big my... Part of that's it. a big part of what produced it. That's a big part of how I felt when I was in it. Right. Mm. And being a burden to others and not doing the things that I felt I should be doing, which I normally do, to make other people happy. So there's a lot of guilt goes with that. I think that's intensely true. I think it it is so difficult that space of real depression and, and like heaviness. Um, and I was saying earlier that this podcast has come at a, a, a kind of fitting time because I'm at the moment trying to work through my psychiatrist a lot of the different symptoms and, and really sort out and get down to um, not necessarily being able to put a name on all these things, but looking at the different diagnoses that have been applied and then thinking about how actually I can help to find a way to manage all of these things um, and live alongside them, if that makes sense. Um, and I know that um, for me, it is a real, it's a, a cycle of um, mania, like hypomania, and then being really depressed, so anxiety and mm -hmm. then being really depressed. Um, and for me, that's a lot of crashing and a lot of like really burning out. And I think that Actually, now I'm learning more um, because something I had struggled a lot with um, because of the the way that I had grown up and things that like various things that happened have been really um, being very very like dissociative when I'm in that um, state of being very down, and that's more about uh, not necessarily like knowing where you are, not being familiar with your surroundings, um, being very like unsure of your identity and what's going on, um, and really just kind of zoning out if that makes sense. Um, and now I'm, I'm almost learning in a kind of scary way, but to lean in a little bit to that feeling of feeling depressed, which sounds awful, um, but is quite like a cathartic thing mm. sometimes. Um, and it is that heaviness, that sense of, oh God, like I actually can't do all these things. And it, I think a lot of people see it as this sort of laziness, which is where the shame comes from. Mm -hmm. But it's a real feeling of like, no, I just I just can't do mm -hmm. those things. Mm -hmm. And it's very much a, all these everyday responsibilities and duties that you have and the people that you love. And it's just a sense of really like, I can't do any of those things like right now. Um, and that, depending on how long it lasts and depending on how intense it is, is just so difficult to express to people. Um, I find myself like texting my best friend being like, I just can't, I just can't do it. And I can't find it any other words, ironically, to express it apart from, apart from those. And what, yeah. and what do you want to do in that? I mean, do you want to let yourself off and say, actually, I can't do it now, so I'm going to have a, a rest? Or do you go into a, I can't do it, but I'm going to keep trying. Do you go into that? Or oh, do you yeah, do it? I can't do that. it, but I really want to find the way of, of, of explaining it to others that I can't do it. You know, where, where do you go um, with that? I'm actually a sucker for because because I have such this internalised sense of I need to be like worthy. I need to do all these things. Yeah. I'm a big sucker for like even when uh, I definitely couldn't do it when I was younger. I would just tune out. But now, especially, I I feel like I push to do the thing. And it just makes it worse. It just means that the whole episode lasts a lot longer. Um, so you're kind of like stringing out the energy that you have and just like slogging through. But it just every it feel it feels kind of impossible. But then you'll do it anyway. So I'll sort of say like I've, I really can't do this thing. And then I'll like 20 minutes later I'll be like putting my shoes on, like crying, being like I'm gonna do the I'm thing. Do it anyway. Um, so I think it really depends. But it's such a different experience that like we talk about them being antagonistic. But I think that 
the most shame that I felt had been talking about anxiety and not okay. depression. Right. Um, which and is why interesting. is that? I don't know. I think that you were talking about um, the physicality, Alan, and sort of how that uh, manifests, how, ma- how, how anxiety manifests physically and those physical symptoms. And I think that one of the things I felt most shame about was panic attacks when I was okay. younger and especially when I first got to university. And they're horrid. Mm. They affect, different, affect, different, affect different people in different ways, actually. Yes, yeah. But yeah. Uh, they are horrid, yeah. Yeah. Do you, w- I mean, one, just before we leave what Rosie was talking about, the other thing I think about, if you're in a depressed state, you're decision-making processes are not at their best. And if you do batter on and try to do things, you will make mistakes. Mm. I know, because I did. And there are people I let down because I made bad decisions I didn't turn up to things because I got myself in a muddle because my brain wasn't working with its yeah. normal... Yeah. That brain fog. Brain fog, yeah. Mm. The brain fog just meant that I was sort of stumbling through life and eventually stumbled and fell over. But, um, you know, the, the, I wasn't making good decisions and mm-hmm. I was letting people down and then mm. that exacerbated the guilt which exacerbates the depression. Okay. But that, that push-on-through mentality, it's interesting, it's, it's come up in a few of the podcast conversations, and I think a feature of the push-on-through, um, w- whether or not it, it's being accompanied by depression, is is a fixation on the task that needs done, mm-hmm. the task that, 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 that you want to do. It's, it's a fixation on performance. It's a fixation on performance, and it does... Um, it narrow it tunnels it gives us tunnel vision and it actually of course it then affects our connectedness because we're so focused on the mm-hmm. task that we we know we're not actually connecting with our own selves <laughs> how we're feeling and what our body's telling us or or with the others around us or mm. therefore drawing on the support we're not even noticing how others might enable that thing to be done we're probably um, shutting them out by you just being so so tunnel yeah. vision about it yeah um, so it, it it's um you know, we we might think this is great. I'm I'm going to be doing it anyway. I'm not. I'm feeling rubbish, but but nonetheless, I'm getting this done. But that actually actually might be mm-hmm. there is the, po- the least positive path. But my finding is there is a point in the recovery process when you're getting better that it's better to crack on and get on with things, and begin to re-establish normality. Mm. But there's I think there's a time when it hits you. I don't know if you found this, Rosie, that you've just got to collapse and let it be. Mm. Oh, 100 percent. And I think like. Um, something that's really affected whenever I am very depressed is really like executive function skills okay. um, which is becoming a lot more talked about lately and people are getting a lot more educated on what that means and really it it being that w- when you're executive functioning and, and those skills are really like affected um, which is so common in people with mental illness um, it's very difficult to make cohesive plans that achieve your aims that are long term um, it's difficult for things to make sense in time and space and schedules you're about getting mm-hmm. muddled up and confused I'll forget completely where I need to be and what I need to be doing um, and that really gets like very impaired I guess or impinged upon um, whenever I'm in that real state of depression mm-hmm. in, in a very different way than when I'm anxious okay. um, and I think that that's something that can feel really physical in terms of rushing around not understanding where you are being really tired um but is also just incredibly confusing so it's even harder to like break out of that that space um and that definitely gets in the way of doing the thing anyway so what do you do to get your those executive function functioning back oh um I actually keep like a, I keep a bullet journal hmm. um and something I had like a lot of issue with um in sort of first and second year was losing like gaps of time like whole like gaps of like five days um because I was really in this like dissociative like fog and I just would 
sort of come home and sit down and be like, oh my gosh, where have I been? Like, what have I been doing? Because um, I've either been really manic or I've just been really like crashed out and burned, like you say, when your body just kind of gives up. Um, and uh, I used to have to be like to my flatmate, my best friend who I do most things with, I used to, she used to sit down and like tell me everything that I'd done and where I'd been. Um, and I was like, I can't realistically make her keep doing this. So I started keeping um, like a, a bullet journal where I would write down where I've been at certain times and stuff and and plan in different activities. And that really helps me with executive functioning, which is okay. like planning my time schedule, knowing what I'm trying to achieve and what I need to get done. And it's still really confusing, but it's kind of the edge of that is kind of taken off a little bit to where I can always rely on okay I, I need to do this thing and I'm just going to do that one and that that's that's okay it, it doesn't matter if I've forgotten a couple of other things yeah. um yeah I, I don't know about you and I, I sometimes encourage people to to make themselves a a, a really useful fluid drink <laughs> with uh, with yeah. with the right levels of sugar and salt in them mm-hmm. to get as as a, as a, as a, as a sort of, of electrolytes so. <laughs> yeah exactly it's like that's the first first aid yeah. then you can work out whether whether you need a sleep a shower or meal because <laughs> when your executive function's gone you don't yeah. know do you you, you need yeah. something but you don't know whether to sleep or eat or yeah I, I normally like before I make any big decisions I normally have like a snack because <laughs> yeah. I, I so know you, if I'm if I'm okay. like low on blood sugar I'm gonna be so confused so yeah definitely not, okay yeah mm-hmm. so you so you do you are you are attending to that bit of yourself there's because yeah. there's a lot that's very physical about both depression mm. and anxiety yeah. isn't there yes yeah and in fact yeah. The, the panic attack part that Rosie you referred to um I I actually had panic attacks while I was getting better from depression Did and you? anxiety, which was odd. Right. They were not associated with the anxiety and depression at the time. Okay. But I was having panic attacks about having panic attacks, mm. which is a yes. bit circular. Yes, worry growing itself. Um, yeah, you worry, And so worry I, when I felt the symptoms that constitute a panic attack, I was having one. <laughs> Come oh, hell or high yeah. water, I was having one. It was just self-reinforcing. Can you explain a bit what that's like? Um, well, I think it's different for different people. Mine was mainly that I felt very anxious about nothing in particular, and my face streamed with sweat. Right. Not the rest of me. The rest of me was fine. Mm. It would just pour off my forehead into my eyes. Mm. Uh, and I felt mm. very unwe- very unpleasant. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, of course, I was aver- aware that people were seeing my face covered in sweat, so that made me even more that panicked. That makes it worse, it makes yes. it much worse. Did you feel your heart going very fast? Not or? really, no. People do say they feel their heart racing. I don't really feel... I didn't really feel that. Um, the, the solution, if it was a solution, was just to go and lie down flat for a bit. Okay. Out of the wee until it passed. Did it tend to happen at places where you could go and lie down? Mostly, yes. And mostly it happened, mostly at home and mostly at mealtimes, actually, when, you know, I was sitting right. at the table with people looking at me. Right. And the solution was just to say, look, I'm sorry, I'm having one of these. I'm going to go and lie on the sofa for 10 mm. minutes mm-hmm. until it passes. Then I'll come back and finish that. Mm. Um, eventually, I learned that was the way to deal with it. Okay. Uh, and now there are... I haven't had one touch wood for a very long time, years. Yeah, okay. Yeah, and how, and how about you, Rosie? Uh, I think the first the first few that, few that I had were very, like, classical panic attacks, if you like, like a very kind of following the prescriptive list of things that they tell you you to expect. And, um, yeah, really, like, heart, heart racing and um, being... Short, breathing quickly. Yeah, breathing quickly, not being able to breathe. Um, and then... I remember as uh, sort of going through my teen years and, and um, a lot of stuff was happening, I was m- moving out of my home and moving in with my friend for a while and, like, lots of things were going on. Um, and uh, I just... 
they started to become a bit more sort of like paralyzing really more than mm. anything else um and i started having uh seizures which was really worrying mm. um and which uh i just didn't know how to explain didn't know what like was going on and it was very much like hallucinating having like a real like ve- it was very confusing and very disorientating and um it really worried me for a really long time and uh essentially uh, I realized after quite a while and talking to quite a lot of different people that you know that's okay and it's, it could happen there's nothing you can really do about it in the moment you just have to kind of wait um which is horrible because you want mm-hmm. to be out of that place of danger like straight away and it's it's uh it's it's such a physical response for a lot of people mm-hmm. and um i think that was scary for me and then i sort of went a long time without having any um for for quite a while and um i think that was mainly because uh I was focusing these emotions and feelings on other things um, from my year out. And then uh, coming to university, hitting exam season again, bang, we're back. And so it was exams, just, exams. Yeah, I think it was really difficult actually being in first year. Um, my, my best friend was, was struggling with them as well and had never really experienced that before. And watching somebody else go through it from the outside was horrendous, <laughs> like horrendous because there's nothing you can do. And you know exactly not potentially like every single emotion they're feeling because like you said it's different for everyone but you know the terror and mm. the, the the fear and you just there's nothing you can do about it and you just have to just wait um but yeah i think different times during people's lives they, they anxiety takes many different forms and panic attacks aren't there's no real traditional like go-to manual for mm-hmm. panic attacks mm-hmm. i think that um my overriding emotion when having one of those is embarrassment is it? Yeah. Right. It's not, I don't really get frightened. Well, I, I don't get I haven't had one for a while, but I did, didn't get frightened in the way that Rosie's describing, but I did get very embarrassed that I suddenly looked funny because I was sweating and I was feeling hot and I was agitated. Yeah. I had one in the, in the fringe, actually, just gone, and I hadn't had any for a while, and then the, fr- the fringe kind of hit, and uh, I was in Sainsbury's. I just wanted to buy a pint of milk, and um, there were so many people around, and I remember so many people touching touching me and just being so close to me and that's definitely one of my triggers is like I have a, a lot of need for personal space a lot of the time and uh and I just sat down on the floor in the Sainsbury's and just burst into tears and was like really shaking and then more people were touching me and I was like this is just making it worse but you can't in that moment there's nothing you can do to explain how you're feeling if someone were to ask me what what do you need right now I wouldn't be able to tell them in that moment and I think um a big part of like coming to terms with anxiety with a capital A and with panic attacks is really learning to set up preemptive um, measures for when you're having one. Uh, like you said, like knowing I need to go and lie down. Um, mm-hmm. For me, it's knowing like, you know, I know that these people will make me feel really safe and I need to be around those people. Okay. Um, so you yeah. might, so you might, might you text somebody? Yeah, um, yeah. yeah. I've known, you know, if people do that, say I've got people on my phone, if I can just send them a text. Then, yeah, you know that sort of definitely. thing. Definitely, I have one in a in a club as well in the fringe after after the Sainsbury's incident, um, which was bad. Like the club is just full of people, and re- looking back, probably wasn't the best place to be at the time. Yeah, it sounds like probably not. Yeah, and I, I remember I left and I just I was just beside myself and I I mm. ran like around Edinburgh for like half a mile because I just had so much energy and like I was so panicking that I needed to work it off and then I just sat down on the floor outside somewhere and just I rang Izzy and I was like I just need to be with my best friend I need to feel safe and then I was fine Mm -hmm. um but it's 
only when you get a lot further on in that journey of understanding what's going on for you that you know how to mm-hmm. take those steps. Yeah, for <laughs> me, the, the, the move going away, actually, the lying down wasn't necessary. It could be sitting down, it could be standing, it could be anything. For me, it was actually removing myself from where other people could see me so that I could stop being embarrassed and let mm-hmm. it all calm down. Okay. So that was, that was the, if you like, that was the cure. Mm-hmm. And what about doing things like um, connecting with where you are? So thinking about, okay, what can I see? You know, sometimes mm-hmm. sometimes people do the, what yeah. are five things I can see? What are four things I can so hear? So I, I do that when I'm anxious or when I'm mm-hmm. dissociative and try okay. and really like, I, yeah, I will do like five things I can see, five things I can smell, five things I can touch. Um, and I think that that, those things are really important when you get to a place where you understand what's going on for you. When you're at like a real crisis point and all of these these things and all these mental health issues are really happening and you haven't got a sense of what they mean and what, what's going on, it's really difficult to engage mm. in those things, yeah. especially mm. things like mindfulness and meditation for me. I know when I'm in like a crisis point, they aren't going to do anything. Not going to happen. Yeah. No. So one of the most helpful things I think I, I heard, um, and it was years ago, was somebody saying... Um, a good thing to know about panic is that it peaks and then it resides. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because then if you're in a peak of it, at least, you know, on one level, you can think, well, this will reside because that is the pattern that it takes. Mm-hmm. Even if, you know, you don't know how long it might be and it doesn't tell you anything about how intense it might be, but it does tell you that it will, mm-hmm. that it will pass. Yes. My wife suffers mm-hmm. from anxiety and her, her trigger is not sleeping. Right. So she can get anxious yes. about not sleeping, and if she then wakes up and gets anxious, she doesn't sleep. <sighs> so different people have different triggers. Mm. And hers is definitely at the moment focused on sleep. And anxious, an- anxiety or, or worry are things that grow themselves, don't they? So oh, you're yes. you're saying that you you would have a, you would panic about having a, a panic, panic attack, attack, or you'd yeah. worry about feeling worried. Um, uh, yes. Yeah, so we 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 want to to. Um, Often it's not the thing itself that's no. the problem. It's it's the worry we've built on top of it that well, can I become moving. Well, I think in my case, it's, it's then that's a question of breaking the cycle, and that's why getting oh. out of the room, okay. just being somewhere else for a while, yeah. stops okay. me thinking. Gosh, everybody's looking at my I face covered in sweat. Um, okay. So I'm, and then it's, it sort of subsides, as you say, and I can oh. go back in. And generally, it has been fine. Mm. But yeah. I must be in a better place just now because it hasn't happened for many years. Mm. Well, that's good. Mm. I find that need for space is, su- is such a physical feeling as well. Mm. Um, and I know for me that when I have a panic attack and it, it's normally because I'm feeling triggered by something and I think that's part of, of dealing with for what a lot of people are, are having now um, and a lot of difficulty with trauma, especially um, in childhood. And we're seeing more like studies coming out around that mm. and what that means for people. And um, I think that... A, a, getting a good understanding of what my triggers are and sort of thinking, okay, well, that's not very logical, but that's fine because that's how my body is processing this. That's okay. Um, Had been brilliant so that now I know, well, actually those things are going to be triggering for me. Mm-hmm. So I'm I'm just not going to do them. Um, And I'm also going to be aware that if I'm going to do things like that, because I have to, I'm going to set up measures to help myself. Have a, have a backup, yeah. <clears throat> yeah, and I think that, Getting that space is really important. I actually bought like a little 
in my bedroom a little kids play tent which Ooh. sounds ridiculous but like it's filled with like fairy lights and like little nice blankets and stuff and like when I'm feeling really um triggered or when I know that I'm having what like a lot of people with um that deal with trauma would consider to be like a flashback or I'm having like a really strong response to something I just kind of sit in the tent for a bit and I'll, I'll text my friends and I'll be like yeah I'm just in the tent and I'll see you in a bit <laughs> and it's quite like it's quite nice because to me having that safe space is really really like crucial to calming down and I can't unless I have it so being in like a little bubble for a little bit is is definitely like really reassuring so I would urge anyone 10 pounds from Amazon kid okay. tent, kid tent. <laughs> but, but but knowing what you need and yeah. taking the measures to provide it for yourself I mean that's mm. that's really top self-care that yeah really at university it's, it's hard though like I'm in in first year when you're in halls with a lot of other people that you don't know mm. um it's really hard to like establish that space and also to decide how honest to be with people, which I think is something that anyone within an academic setting really worries about is, you know, if I'm honest, will I still be valued? Will I still be credible and reliable? Um, is a really hard feeling. When I came back to work after my episode of, excuse me, I've got hiccups, um, after my bout of depression, um, walk into a corridor and I'd see a colleague I hadn't seen since I'd been off sick. And they would do one of two things. They'd either walk towards me and actually or metaphorically put their arms around me and say how are you doing or they would turn around and go into the nearest toilet to avoid me <laughs> yeah that was the two reactions which would have probably have been my own reactions before mm. i experienced it because they don't know what to say are you going to be a bit funny mm. are you going to talk nonsense uh, is this going to be embarrassing um, I am much better prepared as a result of having been depressed and anxious to deal with people who are depressed and anxious mm. I'm not necessarily a better person because of that I've just learned so no, some, no, some you know some people have no experience no, and therefore right. it is deeply scary naivety is is a big driver I think coming to university um in my first year I'd taken a year out where um I have been like, I'm going to have a really fun year out. And then at the end of my A-levels, I was incredibly depressed, incredibly anxious. And I was like, well, A-levels are over, exams are out of the way, it will all look up from here, mm, it'll be fine. No, like I just, and then the next the next year, like I, I struggled a lot with um, my depression and anxiety and a lot of other things to do with um, like trauma and things that I couldn't yet like put a name to. And um, that was really hard and the year went on and I had no, no structure. I had like a, a, a job that I got that was great, but like I was hating it. Um, and I really just like flailed and just like, if it was like sink or swim, I was just like sinking. Um, and I I would just wake up in the morning and nothing would be happening. I just, I've just woken up, I've opened my eyes, but I'm anxious and I'm like, I can't breathe and I don't know what's, what's happening. Um, and it, it really like sort of sunk and sunk and I started um, to have real issues with um, eating and food and concentrating all of the anxiety mm. and the compulsions and obsessions that I was feeling from all these, these mental health problems that I, I didn't know how to express or explain and that um, the NHS wasn't dealing with so well where I was from, um, really focusing on that and ended, ended up having a really serious eating disorder and, and uh, it got to where I was applying because I'd applied for deferred entry. It got to where I was starting to apply for things at university and sorting out um, accommodation and, and so on and so forth. And uh, I remember going in to see um, my like case person um, in the NHS um, and them being like, well, you can't go to university, like that's not gonna happen. And I had to work really, really hard to be like healthy enough to get here. And then I arrived and I was like, oh my gosh, like are people going to know? I was like, I feel like people will, 
instinctively have some kind of sense that like I don't mm-hmm. belong here um, and I'd worked really really hard to get here and I was like oh god like I'm here now what do I do um, and I, I didn't really know how to express to anyone like I struggle with these things or I might need those things who do I go to who do I speak to and um, eventually I think yeah you get one of two reactions but I decided that it was better off being really honest and then being friends with the people who were okay with it. You could cope, yeah. Yeah. Um, and it was the best decision I ever made because there are so many people in this city that are studying here that like at least one of them is going to think you're all right. So, <laughs> so you yeah. took courage to sort of test the waters. You thought you'll be, you'll you'll try a certain amount of openness about how things yeah. are. You both done. You're both very open, aren't you? You, you both Tend to be kind yes. of open, open. I think you have to be careful with yeah. it because sometimes when yeah. people say, "How are you?" all they want you to say is, "I'm fine, thanks." Yeah. Others actually want to know. Yes. So I think and it's, it's, you know, as Rosie says, you need to you need to somehow or other test the water by giving them some information, see what the reaction is. And mm. then judge as to whether you're going to go that's, further. That's right. Yeah, like that's I, for your sake and theirs, because mm-hmm. they may not want more. Mm. Yeah, like there's a lot of value in honesty, but then there's also there are also boundaries to that. Like, mm-hmm. and I feel definitely within within my role, like uh, with working with students and and to represent students as well. Like there are a lot of boundaries around, um, you know, how we have conversations and being able to be um, an appropriate leader and and feeling what really is a lot of like internal shame of like you can't talk about these things because you need to be reliable and you need to be this mm. and that and organized and um it's something that is really difficult and i think that when we talk about the words that we use to articulate how we're feeling as well when we talk about depression and anxiety we really get into a space where you you don't want to overshare and you don't want to be people like here are my diagnoses here are all the gps that i have seen here's a list of all these things that i've tried that haven't worked that i don't want you to recommend to me is this real like there's a fine line between like how you it's too much information yeah how you share and how you don't and that's quite hard but like also to a lot of people that are really struggling there's so much value in hearing someone else put a name to the experiences mm-hmm. and really like own them because once you name it and once you describe it and once you you own it you can't be as scared of it like you just mm. you just can't. Once you've named the beast, um, yeah. yeah, and uh, and I think that it's hard balancing those two things. You kind mm-hmm. of your duty to what you imagine to be your older self that needed to hear these things, and your duty as well to to yourself to to keep your boundaries and to not let people, mm-hmm. um, you know, hear things or say things that might be really difficult for you, um, or to to judge you, which mm-hmm. everyone does a little bit. Yeah. I mean, there's also um, can I tell my my 2009 story. Um, <laughs> if you don't tell people things, they will make stuff up. Yes. And in 2009, I was diagnosed with colon cancer. I had a chunk of colon removed. And I'm now very well, thank you. But I was head of school at the time, and my PA advised me to send out a message just saying I was going to the hospital for a short operation and I'd be back out again. Not to give any details, because people would use them against me for some reason. Uh, so I did that had the colon operation, came back out again, came back to work to discover that three rumours had broken out. The first one was that I was actually dead, that I hadn't survived. The second one was that I had an operation on my manly bits and it was very embarrassing. Huh. And the third and best one was that I'd gone for a facelift. <laughs> <laughs> Which patently hadn't worked. Um, so at that point I made a decision that uh, an email was going out to the whole school saying... These are interesting rumours. None of them is true. This is what actually happened in an attachment. If you don't want to read it, don't read it. If you want to read it, it's not gory and grisly and lots of bowel details. It just tells you what happened. 
Mm. And I'm pretty sure everybody opened it up to have a look. And that put, it just made it go away. Yeah. So that level of openness. And then some people came to me and said, oh, my dad had that. He's, he's still alive. So that was mm. usually very encouraging. Mm. And some people would come along and say, what's it like? I mean, I've heard about that. It's, I'm really interested. Yeah. So at that point, I kind of knew, I knew where the disclosure what they yeah. wanted. Yeah. But it was yeah. very important for me to then establish when people came along and said, how are you? That, well, the operation went well. Edinburgh is a good place if you're going to be seriously ill and I'm now fine, thanks. And that's mm. all they wanted. Yes. Others wanted to hear details because they were interested. Yeah. And rumours are unhelpful in all sorts of ways because they, I mean, one of the ways in which they're unhelpful is that they 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 fuel a kind of fear yes. in, in amongst everybody. Yes, yeah. they do. Yeah. And people make up, people, as I say, people will make up extraordinary stuff. Yeah. And, uh, well, the facelift book for next year. That's uh, I like that one. But we had a conversation um, when we were sitting on the comfy chairs. Uh, we had a bit of a conversation about how it's helpful to have names for things, but how also that's not always helpful. Sometimes labels it's a, it's aren't a helpful. Double-edged sword. Mm. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah I, I over the um, over the fringe, I worked for a really interesting guy who uh, who wrote a book about. Um, he's a metal comedian. Um, he's called Dave Chawner and uh, he's really great. Um, but he, he wrote a book about how he had had anorexia and depression and has suffered with anxiety and panic attacks and how he expressed it through comedy. And um, one of the things that he said that really stuck with me throughout The Fringe um, was that your uh, emotions are like the weather and they change a lot. And it's it's normal for there to be like spells of different negative and positive things, and that's fine. Um, but your mental health and your mood um, is really overall more like the climate. You know, if it's dry all the time and nothing can grow there, it's going to be crap, and like no one's gonna <laughs> no one's gonna want to live there. Um, and uh, and like that really stuck with me, and and, and like this. Um, this kind of like distinction because you you can be depressed, you can suffer from depression without having. I guess like a depressive disorder or mm. a, or a condition or something that lasts with you throughout your life that you will need to just learn to sort of manage and live with, and you can be in situations that make you extremely depressed and extremely anxious, and that's incredibly valid and horrible as a feeling, um, but they might go away further down the line, and your mental health, more overall, might be an okay climate, and that might have been a bad storm that came that year or something, um, and putting names to things like depression and anxiety. Um, and, and being able to say, you know, this is something that is going to happen to me for my life because of the way that either my brain works or something that has happened um, or so on and so forth. And I will learn to live with this and manage it as part of my everyday experience. It's really empowering to be able to name those things and like remove the shame and the stigma, even that you feel inside yourself. But like you said, it's such a double-edged sword and that so many people feel potentially like they don't fit into any of these spaces? I think that's the other side of it, yes. No, I'm 66. I went 59 years without any depression with a capital D. I'd been fed up about things and depressed about things that had happened. I'd been depressed about other people in my family being depressed. But that was not clinical depression. That was just me being depressed. Then something happened which triggered it, and it was a work-related thing, which I won't go into, but it was, it was involved involved my trigger point, what I now know is my trigger point, which is letting people down. A bunch of students um, had a bad time, thanks to a member of staff in my school while I was head of school. Uh, I found out about it too late to do anything about it, decided it was my fault, and went into a downward spiral and crashed. So I was then certainly depressed and very anxious, and I became depressed clinically, and there's no doubt about it because I couldn't get out of bed. I had the solid air syndromes. 
So I now know that I'm vulnerable to that. I know mm. what the triggers are, I know what the signs are. And the sign is if I don't take one of my guitars off the wall for a couple of days to play, I'm not well. Now, what, what's your fun thing to do? Uh, for sure, like I, I enjoy like going to the gym and like I enjoy exercising, but to a moderate extent because mm-hmm. I think having a past definitely with restrictive eating and having yeah, an ACS eating yeah, disorder now careful. as well as the kind of and I'm kind of like disillusioned with that when people are like go outside, go for a walk, go for a run. I'm like yeah, but also might become, mm, yeah, and that might take yeah. over. Yeah, yeah so it, it's 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 difficult, but um, I have I actually have a hamster, like a pet hamster, oh. um, and it was a big thing for me at university to get some to be like. It sounds really, really silly and trivial, but like if I can't get out of bed that day, but I know I've got to feed my hamster, I will do at least one thing. Mm-hmm. I'll do one thing. Um, it used to be reading for me and listening to music. And when I was very ill in my year out, and when I was um, struggling a lot with like a lot of symptoms of, of, of trauma and PTSD and stuff, I di- I f- fell out of love with music, and I just I I, I couldn't Ooh, connect a, with it. That's a resource. Yeah, yeah, I couldn't connect with it at all. And now, like, I've been back in a big thing of, like, me and my girlfriend will listen to an album and, like, send each other songs. And it, it really, like, helps me to be able to connect to that again. Mm-hmm. Um, well, but, music yeah. is a huge outlet. Whether you're singing it, writing it, listening to it, it's, mm. it's, a, it's a good way of, of exploring the way you're feeling. Yeah. And sometimes I like yeah. listening to happy music. Sometimes I like listening to Gregorian chant. <laughs> Sometimes I'll listen to ACDC at full volume. Yeah. It'll depend on the mood I'm in and what I'm trying to get from the music. Yeah, I think it's a good thing to to mm. to mention is yeah, noticing when noticing depression and anxiety are hitting, yeah. The things that you love doing, the things that will in fact alleviate your depression and anxiety and you stop doing them. Mm. That's a danger sign. But you also said it's in your family, it's in mine too. Mm. Um I now know that I am vulnerable to this if the trigger points happen, which is me letting down people who rely on me and people whom I love. Uh, so I know to be careful of that. But I also know that um, my grandfather and his father both committed suicide. Mm. So there's a history of mental illness Definitely. and yeah. that sort of self-criticalness, I think, in my family. So it's probably yeah. a deficiency of serotonin, actually. Yeah, and that's when we talk about putting names to things. Sometimes that's helpful because there are all kinds of different treatments you can get. Mm-hmm. Um, something I felt a lot of shame about at first was taking medication. Um, for none, none of us likes that, but sometimes it's yeah. part of the solution. I remember I was like outed at school for um, I was taking um, beta blockers, which obviously like lower your heart rate and mm-hmm. try to alleviate some of the physical symptoms of anxiety. They didn't really work for me, um, basically. But um, uh, the I, I started taking them when I was in in, in sick form, so the end of um, secondary school for my year out and around A levels and. Um, I remember, I remember I was taking them and my best friend told everyone like at the table at lunch. And mm. I was like, I went, I went kind of off on one. I was really annoyed and like lost my temper. But it was because I felt this really like strong sense of shame. But actually when I sort of talked about it, like no one really cared. But um, I felt this really like intense amount of shame and, and around um, like any kind of medication I think people people do. Like it, it's hard as well when you, when you put names to things mm-hmm. and you get... Um, you can get medical help. Mm-hmm. You know, there's all kinds of paths you can go down. Um, and that's where sometimes putting a name to thing and understanding these clusters of symptoms can be helpful is because I I had never, before I moved up here and got in touch with the NHS in Scotland, I had never received any um, trauma-focused work from any health provider and nothing had worked because it hadn't been trauma-focused and it hadn't understood working from that baseline. Um, and then when I started getting that kind of care, everything started to sort of start fitting in place. Mm -hmm. Um, 
and that's why maybe sometimes putting a name to thing to a thing. A name is can help. I think with the medication, I think people need to understand that medication is never the solution. Yeah. To the conventional mental, it may, maybe the solution to things like paranoid schizophrenia, but yeah. it's not the solution to depression. Mm. They can be part of the solution. Um, therefore, relying, waiting, and to get the perfect medication that makes you happy all the time is a big mistake. Yeah. And getting medication and just sitting back and saying, now I'm going to wait for that medication to cure me is a mistake because you have to do some work as well. And also when we talk about depression and anxiety and, and those being also situational emotions as opposed to long-term conditions, it's, um, you know, a, a lot of people will be prescribed um, antidepressants and, and they'll mm-hmm. be on them for like six months because it's just they're going through a really rough period in their life and that's the way their brain is working at that point in time. And it doesn't mean that you will have to take something forever. It doesn't mean that this will be something that will be with you for the rest of your life. It's not decided and determined. Um, it's just where you're at at the moment. Yeah, I think the other thing people don't understand about, particularly about antidepressants, is a certain amount of it's trial and error. Mm. Um, there are lots of SSRAs, for example, the serotonin inhibitors, that one will work with a person and another one won't. Does that and affect you, like your ability to, to do things professionally, though? Because I, I know um, like lots of different medications and treatments and, and whatever have made me really, really tired. So that doing any mm-hmm. kind of like uni work was just like written off. Like it would get to 2 p.m. and wherever I was, I would need to nap. Like I was known, I, I fell asleep in lectures. I fell asleep on the bus, the shuttle bus. I fell asleep in the library and cafes. Like it was just anywhere. Like it, once, once it hit 2 p.m., I was gone. Mm-hmm. And um, Most of these things have yeah. side effects. I mean, yeah. the, the serotonin inhibitors tend not to make you sleepy. Yeah, they have a number of side effects, which probably the best not to go into. But um, <laughs> they will all have side effects, and people need to know that you have them if if you're suffering from side mm-hmm. effects. A lot of them don't have significant side effects; uh, they just do their job. Yeah, many of them, and they're getting better. You, you might well stay on for at least a year. I mean, that's quite common with yeah, depression to be on for at least a year. year. Think, yeah, yeah, and some people will be on it for life. Yes. Yeah. Um, because it's, it has a regulatory function. Mm. Yes, I mean, if, if, you're, if, you're, if your system does not regulate serotonin properly, mm. then taking SSRIs will cause your serotonin levels to rise mm. by stopping your brain from sucking back the serotonin mm-hmm. to reuse it. It will yeah. slow that mm. down. So there's more serotonin about, which seems to be associated with happiness. Yeah. They never say it causes happiness. It's associated with. Mm. That's medical speak for we don't really know. Um so some of these drugs actually do something which is systemic and need, people need to be on them for people life. People need to be on them, that's yeah. right. And, and, and if that's yeah. where you are, you just need to say, right, that's where I'm at. Yeah. Better this than the other thing. That's right. Yeah, that's I think right. your GP can be massively, massively helpful with those kinds or of things. Or unhelpful. Yeah, yeah or depends. unhelpful. And I, 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 like, you know, I, I went to my GP lots of times, but I've always been, since I arrived at university, within like a specialist service. So I've been very, very lucky that people have been around to like help me make those decisions. Edinburgh is a good place to be ill. Uh, definitely, yeah. And prescriptions are free in Scotland. So that's True. another benefit. Um, but yeah, like changing things and being like, actually, this isn't working for me. It's not fitting in with my uni life. Mm-hmm. And it's making it really hard to study. And just being, just kind of being like, I actually don't want to be on this anymore. Um, and and evaluating whether different things are working. But a lot of my time as well was taken up with doctor's appointment because appointments because of that. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that's a big shame feeling for me. Um, I had like definitely, I, I missed a lot of things because I was like, I have to go to this appointment. Like if I don't go, I will feel very unwell and mm-hmm. I need to go and talk about these things. Um, and a lot of the time that was very difficult for me with like timetabling and had a, a lot of issues with communicating to people why these appointments were necessary and I'm sorry but like they will come first um, and that's hard and I think that's harder when you think 
um, a, a common thought I have is like that imposter syndrome thought of like, well, clearly I'm not cut out for doing this, mm-hmm. this kind of studying. I'm not going to be able to spend long hours in a lab because I'm tired. I'm not going to be able to um, attend all these lectures and tutorials and maybe I'm just in the wrong place and I don't fit in here and I'm not worthy of being here. And that's a, a thought spiral that would really send me from that feeling of being really anxious into a feeling of depression. Um, and I know that, I know that's one of my triggers, um, but I think that's a really hard part of being at university is thinking how will I ever balance what feels so unfair in terms of these difficulties of mental health and, and mental health conditions, whether it's the situation or how you're feeling in the moment or whether it's long lasting, how will I balance that, which I don't want to have to deal with, um, and the indignation of that with all of these things that I need to do to be here and that people are telling me I have to do to be worthy. And and balancing those two at university for me was really tough. And I almost dropped out at the end of um, second year. I think it was second year. No, the, the middle of second year I almost dropped out because uh, I just felt so, I can't be here, I can't do these things. Mm-hmm. And it was again, as that feeling of like, I can't do this. I'm not gonna be able to do these things. Um, and that's like a, a really tough feeling for anyone, but especially someone who's quite young and is still figuring out what they want to do with their life. And where do you sit with that now? So you're beginning not, of your I'm, third I'm year. I'm here. I'm not dropping yeah, out. No. Also, I spent twenty seven thousand pounds to be here now, so mm. I'm I'm in for the long haul. <laughs> yeah, so you've got you've got some yeah. good arguments um, at your disposal that you yeah. can pull on yeah. to stop yourself from yeah, from I definitely. And to... I remember like it was it was more for me that was like that was a response that was coming from a place of reacting to triggers and reacting to what like I know now to be parts of the trauma that I had dealt with that um, really exact like exacerbates exacerbates is that the word exacerbates yeah exacerbates um, those feelings of depression that's quite nice that we'll coin that we'll coin that one Um, I think we should start drawing to a close and I I wondered if if either of you or both of you would like to reflect on some things you've learned from your experiences of anxiety and depression that you might like to share that some of it some of it might be encouraging Mm -hmm. to others to hear or kind of eye-opening I'll kick off on mm. that once Rosie started. Um, I've learned a lot about my... Um, a friend once told me I was one of the most self-analytical pe- person she'd ever met, which is a right. tendency to just be aware of myself and mm. what I'm doing and what I'm good at and what I'm not. Mm. Um, one thing I hadn't realised until I had that bout of anxiety and depression was that I am driven by the desire to make everyone I love happy. Mm. And I extend that to people for whom I'm responsible. Mm-hmm. So colleagues at work, students, it's my responsibility to make them happy. If that fails me, I'm in going to crash. Okay. And I think that comes actually from, if I think back to my childhood, um, I was the, the sweaty boy, I was the clever boy at school, which didn't make me very popular, because it doesn't, or it didn't then, certainly. Uh, on top of, so I got a lot of bullying at school, and on top of that, my parents had me and my brother, who was academically a little less able than I was, not much, and I was therefore not praised for anything I did. So um, I'm not saying I had a horrible childhood. I didn't. I had a very safe middle-class childhood, and I was well looked after. But I didn't get a lot of sort of affection and praise for being good at things that I was good at. And I think that's probably partly, probably partly genetic as well, that's probably partly why I have this excessive need to um, perform in the, to the extent of making everyone happy. Mm. So, so um, you've learnt an awful lot of self-awareness and yes. and also things that would help you to understand others 
And I mean, all those things increase our compassion as well, don't they? They do. Actually. I mean, they, they increase my compassion on yeah. myself as I realise yeah. there are things yeah. I can't solve, yeah. which is not something I would have accepted when I was 20, 30, 40. Okay. I thought at that point I was absolutely bulletproof and I was wonderful so I could make my entire family happy all the time. Don't go there. You can't. Mm. Um, it's not a bad thing to want to do. Mm-hmm. I think it makes me a nice person, but it's not a sensible goal. Okay. And I've now learned to be realistic. Um, my other big drive is to create things. Yes. Those things could be songs, they could be research proposals, they could be yeah. lectures, they could be teddy bears. I mean, I, I love making things. Yes, creativity is wonderful. Creativity yeah. um, gets us out of a swamp sometimes. It gets me out of the swamp a lot. Yeah. So that, that I mean, yeah. the creativity is not something that gets thwarted, but the ability to make people happy, that does be, get thwarted okay. by events. And you've just got to be realistic and be kind to yourself and say, do try, but at some point just give up. Yeah, so self-acceptance and acceptance of, of, of reality around you. Yeah, yeah. It's almost like acceptance it's, of your own mortality. Yes. It's acceptance of my limitations that I can't make everyone happy. So at some point it's better just to stop trying. And it's, yeah. it's like Rosie said earlier, the tendency is to try and look for solutions. So if somebody is near you and is depressed, you're trying to say, well, why don't you try this? Or perhaps you should think about that. And actually, if you're if someone is depressed, that can be quite irritating. Uh, yeah, so, no, very de- and frightening, actually. And I think, it, I think because, it's frightening. So sometimes yeah. you're better just to say, yeah, it's crap. Come and sit down, I'll get you a cup of tea, mm. I'll pour you a dram. Let's, yeah. watch, let's watch something dopey on television. That's so relatable because I think like having been through it and, and been and been like at the darkest points of, of my journey like to today and and then seeing other people be um sad or be down or depressed or sort of be like well you need to try this thing and that because i want to fix it i want to help i want to help i want them to be happy i don't want to see them in pain yeah but then also i'm like at the same time while i'm doing it i'm like oh if this was happening to me i'd be so pissed off Uh, so um you kind of have to learn to like yeah but i think the single the single biggest thing that i have learned is that i i can't control what other people are doing around me, um, I can control how much I engage with it, how much it affects mm-hmm. me to some extent. To some extent, you don't always have control over these things, but um, a lot of the time um, you do have uh, an ability to control your exposure to those things and draw boundaries, which is something that I am bad at, but I'm getting much better with. Um, and that You're young. Yeah, exactly. I'm young, got a lot of time to, to, to deal with it, but... I definitely relate to what you were saying about um, this this feeling of, oh, well, maybe these these ways that I felt a long time ago or why I react this way now, that's so incredibly true. Um, and for me, a huge thing with learning um, about my mental health and, and this journey that I have been on and that I'm still going to go on um, had really been identifying things that I still respond to or because of um, and being able to say, well, I'm, I'm responding to these things in these ways and it feels really irrational and really stupid and dumb and I don't understand why I'm so upset, but actually it's coming from this place because of that thing. And being able to identify that is only the first step, I'm sure, in, in being able to reconcile it with being okay. Um, but a realisation for me that these things have happened, they do affect the way that I respond. Um, I am going to experience these symptoms of anxiety and depression. I am going to have these ups and downs but that doesn't mean that I can't find a way to manage it all and be happy. I won't be able to return to sort of, I think we call it like a, um, an adversity or trauma naive or something like that mindset where I haven't been exposed to any of it. I'm not going to be able to go back to that person that I was when I was like five or so because I, I'd also don't have the time to sit around making sandcastles all day. Um, but 
that doesn't mean that I can't exist within what I have now and be okay. Mm. And it doesn't mean that you can't still find little moments of happiness and learning to kind of sit with those, which is something that um, I'm trying to do increasingly while I feel well, is to sort of sit with something and be like, I'm in this space in this moment. Mm. And that sounds really like floaty and ooh. But, um, yeah, but I'm wondering true. if you... Floaty and ooh is okay, I'm yeah, happy. Yeah, but I, I'm also wondering if there in some ways you feel the richer for these experiences, I mean, much as you wouldn't wish for them. Um, um, for some, but, but, for some, yeah. I mean, I think, uh, yeah, there's definitely a lot of stuff that like I, I wish I had never had to mm. um, go through or deal with and a lot of things that like I keep very private because I'm like that just, you know, this is something that still is going to always really affect me. But I think I have learned a lot of strength in myself. Like mm. I know that in the, in my year out, getting to university at the end of that year out, I was like, I could literally do anything mm. because I, I pulled myself back from a place where I was really, you know, like very critical. And I really was so afraid that I would not still be here. And it came up on my, like um, I was syncing my Google Drive because I'm, a millennial techie um and and all these photos from my phone <clears throat> from a long time ago were coming up and it was it was really like i don't even recognize or uh, mm. i don't even associate myself it feels like a different person mm. that's not one, me mm. one thing you have mm. I mean, here's a piece of advice i said i wouldn't give advice but i'll give advice <laughs> we'll end on your piece of advice, my piece of advice. <laughs> one thing you have to do and my wife and i have both had to do this is to forgive your past and park it yeah. I mean, the past, I mean, if I look back, let's take my one, which is not not that I was beaten up as a child or anything, but I had a very sort of very Scottish middle class upbringing. I wasn't praised a lot for what I did. If I was did something well, there was always a but. Mm. But why didn't you do this? Right. So, um, and I had very little physical affection. My mum and dad shook hands with each other at New Year, for heaven's sake. <laughs> um, so I, I've become a very touchy-feely person. Um, you know, I tend to throw my arms around people and sometimes it alarms them and spooks them. My wife's gone the opposite direction. And for a while, when I twigged that, I put that together, I was actually quite angry at my mum and dad, who are now both dead, for bringing me up that way. But I've had to, I've had to go past that and say, OK, I am where I am now, and I'm, I'm actually reasonably comfortable with being this quite huggy, kid, mm. huggy, huggy person. Mm. Um, I am quite tactile with my mm. family, with my granddaughters, uh, and I do heap praise on my family big style because mm. it wasn't done to me. Mm. So that's good. So I've got to forgive my mum and dad. It's a long time ago and I can't... The, the key thing is I can't change that. No. If there's bad stuff in your past, you can change your perspective of it and you can change the way you think about it and you get angry then get not angry. Mm. You can't make it change because no. it's the past. One thing you can sometimes bring to it is a kind of compassion for that, isn't it? A compassion for your mum and dad, maybe. Oh, yeah, what, what absolutely. Was it that, yeah. I do now. They, yeah. they, were, yeah. they were good parents. Yeah. They looked after me yeah. really well. They loved each other dearly and just didn't show it. And didn't show it. And you so there, there were things restraining them and then you can have sort of they compassion are, They were. That it's a generational thing again. Yeah. I'm, I'm a generation mm. down from them mm. and Rosie is a generation and a half away from me. <laughs> so, you know, things do change. Things and change. I have to think back to them having gone through the war, for mm. goodness sake. Yeah, um, exactly. And I, think, I always yeah. think my generation is the generation that wants to be like its kids. My parents' generation wanted to be like their parents. That's so there's a divide. There's a, a divide yes, there. That's right. So I've been trying, yeah. you know, all my adult life, I've been trying to persuade my kids that I'm a cool dad and persuade my granddaughters that I'm a cool grandfather mm. rather than looking back towards previous yeah, generations. wanting to be the authority figure. Thank you so much to you both. We've covered a huge, a huge amount of ground on, on you know, depression, anxiety, which are... Uh, 
you know, experienced by so many people. And I think, I think so, the, the, a, the interesting thing is the, the yeah. differences and the commonalities yeah. between Rosie's experience and mine. There's some things we've both felt. Yes. Some things she's definitely felt that I haven't. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And some circumstances that I've been in that she hasn't. So. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. it still produces this horrible beast is <laughs> depression. But here we all are talking about it. and Still standing, and as Elton John says. Still standing, says. yeah, and smiling. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. If any of the issues in this broadcast have affected you and you'd like support, here are some helplines. First, if you feel that you or someone you are with is in danger right now, please call 999. There is a mental health assessment service for those in or near Edinburgh, which can be contacted on... 0131 537 6000. For phone consultations, there is also Breathing Space, which can be contacted on 0800 838587. The Samaritans, 08457 909090. The Edinburgh Crisis Centre, you can telephone and you can also visit physically. Their number is 0808. 8010414 For university support Nightline offers student support and information their number is 0131 557 4444 The university staff or student counseling services and the university listening service offer daytime and some evening support and we can both be found on the university website <laughs>